Good morning, everybody. My name is Andrew, and I am a pastor here at Sanctuary Church. We are a family of neighborhood communities, and um, what we're going to do today, well, first off, I'm going to sit on a stool. That's a thing. Uh, We are in the middle of 24 (laughs) hours. Everyone's like, cool. Uh, We are uh, right uh, getting towards the back half of a a 24-hour prayer uh, time. Uh, There's been folks that have been praying since 6.30 uh, yesterday. We've had made sure that someone's praying over the... Our community, there's some specific things God invited us to. We had a worship gathering uh, last night at 6.30 that kicked this all off. And this will end at Sanctuary Eastside uh, at their house church gathering tonight uh, at 4.30. And uh, I say that because I think that's partially why I'm sitting in a stool. Because I've been up for a long time. Uh, so I, I told Jordan, uh, who's back there playing the keyboards and drums and making all things sound good. Uh, give it up for Jordan. What a gift. Um, I was telling Jordan, this, this message that I'm going to give, so when I, whenever I'm this tired, it's very rare that I'm like, I'm this, this little asleep. It, it's going to be either like really awesome or really awful. There's no middle you're going to get right now. Um, I probably shouldn't set any expectations and Honestly, a sermon is not about, like, how good, it's not about how I did, it's about how you did. So I'm going to really emphasize that in particular this morning. This is, but I actually truly mean that. This is, whenever someone gets up to share from the word, there's a propensity for whatever reason in church culture is if we're supposed to come in and sit and be entertained by things and leave, and that's how we measure a church. Just a heads up, we're not the church for you. Like, not, not, not because you won't sometimes be excited or whatever, feel like you can consume things, but literally we hate that, and we're going to push back against that, and we're going to try our best to make it as uncomfortable as possible for it is for you to be here and stay here. The church is a people. Amen? And so when we have a, when, when, uh, when we get up and hear the word, the question is, what in there, what in, in being shared is true and good and beautiful and righteous uh, and what does that mean for me to, to make sense of that in my own life and the life of my community? So all that said, we're starting a series called What If. I've never uh, had a, done a sermon series with it as a question. Uh, and so we're going to unpack more of the meaning behind this as the weeks go on. But essentially the, the kind of kitschy tagline here is like what is, like, what is your what if? Like what is, what's like the dream in your heart? Mostly this is a series, as I think it says on the screen, a series about calling. And calling kind of takes up two different pieces, who you're, being, who you're called to be and what you're called to do. And so over the next four weeks, uh, including our conference date that got announced, which I want to encourage everyone to come to that. Uh, we'll talk about that more at the end of the service. But uh, the hope is that these kind of five moments in our community are going to set up um, uh, a deeper, uh, deeper clarity and some strong vision in the hearts of everybody who's a part of our community to have a sense of what they're being invited to do this season and, and who they're being called to be. The, the, the what if. Like, what, what's the thing? If I said, what if this existed? What if, what if God did this in me? What if I, I, I began to see this in a different way? What if... 
this thing that I've, I've wanted to see happen? What if the, the church was, was changed more into what I believe God's called it to be? And what if I took part in that? This is about activating what it says in Scripture is the priesthood of all believers. You ever heard that phrase before? You're all in a Protestant church. Just to let you know, that's pretty much our life verse as Protestants. The priesthood of all believers is to say there's literally no difference between a priest in full regalia and the person who just came to know Jesus. God wants to light a fire and set free the fact that we are all uh, priests with parishes. We, we are all people who, who are being invited to, to, be, to join God in ministry and join God in the renewal of all things. So we want to start this series in talking just about Jesus, which I guess you could start every series talking about Jesus and then every other sermon and then maybe plant the church and spend a lifetime talking about Jesus. That's what we do here. But we wanted to zero in in particular on uh, just to like clear a few things up. And, and I wanted to appear, uh, appeal today specifically to your heart. Because the first step for calling is kind of who you're called to, or you could say who you're, who you're being called by. If I'm going to make sense of who I'm being called to be and what I'm called to do, I should probably ask who's doing the calling. And as followers of Jesus, we have this sense of we're actually being called to a, a specific point. Our, our idea of what we're being called to do, what we're, what we're uh, supposed to invest in, what we're supposed to give our life and our energies for is rooted in something that's different than just how I'm feeling at the moment or whatever cultural trend is happening right now. Do we hear that? You don't have to agree with that. As followers of Jesus, we're just differentiating. We actually... Um, uh, are, are tethered to something or are trying to make sense of that. We have a journey point that we are aiming at. And so what I'm going to be excited about, I can tell already in this series, is that we're trying to stir up like big ambition for your life. And it's not big ambition like I'm not one of these guys like, you can do anything, just go believe in yourself and you can win. I'm not that church either. I mean, I'm rooting for you, and God's on your side, and you can do all things through Christ who empowers you, but, like, some of you are just more talented and will have better, like, options than others, and no, you're not a snowflake, and yes, I'm preaching just to the millennials right now, and yes, I'm just barely a millennial, so I can do that. That said... As followers of Jesus, we know the end of the story. God's going to put it all back together. So our ambition and our dreams should actually be huge. They should be big. They should be big. And if you don't have big dreams, we will settle for small ambitions. If you don't have big dreams, you'll settle for small ambitions. So we have big dreams like I could take some small part in joining God in the renewal of all things. That's a pretty big vision. Hey, what do you do? Oh, I, I partner with uh, the God of the universe and putting things back together. That's like my, my first job. And then I, I'm also an engineer. I'm also a med student. I'm also a... Like, this is our, our big dream. So our, uh, we, we can't have a small ambition. Our ambition is Jesus. Our fascination is Jesus. If you stumbled in here and you're not quite sure what you just walked into, I'm a Christian. And so Jesus is how I understand God. And I realize that when people hear this, when they try to boil down spirituality and religion or like the five noble truths down to something like Jesus, 
you feel like it shrinks and it narrows the discussion about God or spirituality or love. But my experience has been the opposite. My experiences have, with Jesus have opened my mind and my heart to bigger and wider and a more expansive, mysterious, loving God that I believe is up to something in the world. One writer says, it, when you talk about this, it, it brings you to a question of faith. He says, sometimes people who believe in God are referred to as people of faith, which isn't the whole truth because everybody has faith. To believe in God requires faith to experience this world and its endless surprise and mystery and depth and then emphatically declare that it has no common source, it is not headed somewhere, it ultimately has no meaning, that takes faith as well. That takes faith as well. I'll tell you this because at times I found myself in the deepest, darkest places of despair and it seemed too huge a leap of faith to trust that there is a God who loves and helps and hears and heals. That sounded crazy to me. And so depending on where you're coming from, that kind of idea that like Jesus is the answer just sounds childish or naive or simple or uninformed or frankly downright stupid. And in those times, believing in God to me seemed like taking a flying leap. And it was a writer who helped me understand, like, everybody is leaping. Everybody has faith. Whatever it is that we believe, whatever it is that we trust, we are always leaping. We are always people of faith. Whether you believe that this is all that there is, which we've talked about, is no one lives, like, in a, in a specifically, like, lives in, like, a straight, flat, scientist, scientific worldview, like a humanist worldview. It just, it just isn't. No one I know lives as if this all is meaningless and it's all junk. I don't know anybody who lives that way. And so whether you're a Christian or like you come from outer space or you're a Buddhist or you're Jewish or you're a Jedi. Or you don't believe that we can know anything for sure. It's all a form of faith. There's no one who hasn't taken a leap of faith. No one. And so I set that up because I had a number of temptations in giving this talk. I was going to talk about Christology is the fancy word for this in Christian lingo. We wanted to set up, okay, who's calling us? So let's just take some time and give a good old-fashioned why Jesus talk if you've been around church. Why Jesus? I'll give you my best, like, three, like, short philosophical arguments. I'll try my best to distill, like, the work of, of people who have spent a lot of time on this and boil this whole thing down. And I just thought in my heart, the verse that kept coming to mind, and, and frankly, it didn't just come to mind with this sermon. It actually came to mind um, way back, uh, at the, way back, way back at the beginning of the summer when uh, we took a pastoral retreat. This verse came to mind. So if you want some books, I actually have some down here on like the historicity of Jesus or how we can trust the scriptures or making sense of of really your doubts. I have like stuff I could love to give you that will help you do a deep dive. But what I, I felt so compelled to do today was like the opposite of that. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5, if you have your Bibles with you. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. If you type into the Google search bar, 1, C-O-R, 2. And then just click the first link. You'll get it. That wasn't sarcastic, by the way. There's a lot of folks here who are just trying to make sense of the Bible. In fact, they're like, oh, this is a church that opens the Bible, bummer. And so it is with me, brothers and sisters. This is written by a guy named Paul who writes a lot of what's called the New Testament. He's setting up churches. 
He's planting churches, starting outposts of heaven. He's like going around, he's saying, in Ephesus as it is in heaven, in Corinth as it is in heaven, in Rome as it is in heaven. He's setting up these outposts and saying, this, this, this is going to be a place. We're going to expand the work of the kingdom of God. We're going to bear witness to the person of Jesus. And so he writes, so it is with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. As I proclaim to you the testimony about God, Paul could have. We know a good amount about Paul's education. We know a lot about Paul's pedigree. We even know when he went to debate philosophers in the book of Acts. Paul knows this road. This is not some anti-intellectual argument. He's coming to the people of Corinth and saying, look, you know what happened. I didn't come intentionally with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that you might not rest on human wisdom but on God's power. I want to read another translation of this. You'll remember, friends, that when I first came to you to let you in on God's work, I didn't try to impress you with polished speeches and the latest philosophy. I deliberately kept it plain and simple. First, Jesus and who he is, Then Jesus and what he did, Jesus crucified. I was unsure of how to go about this and felt totally inadequate. I was scared to death, and if you want the truth of it, and so nothing I said could have impressed you or anyone else. But the message came through anyway. God's spirit and God's power did it, which made it clear that your life of faith is a response to God's power and not some fancy mental or emotional footwork by me or anyone else. So I just want to come with a demonstration of what's real. I want to come to you with a love story. I want, to, I want to reflect for a moment that if those of us here, and that's most of us in this room, who are like, yeah, Jesus, the king of the world. We say things like that. One way to think of it is like the ultimate reality. Like the thing behind the thing behind the thing. This is like the, the spirituality we're looking for, like in a person. This is what the Bible says, Colossians 1.19. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. Colossians 2.9, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. The writer of Hebrews says it like this, the son perfectly mirrors God and is stamped with God's nature. The Christian story is saying this, we actually believe that the logic, the truth, what philosophers and writers have been trying to wax poetic about all the way to like the yoga studio up the street. How do we make sense of the otherness in the world? Followers of Jesus saying the design, the ultimate reality is literally found in Jesus. That's what these verses are saying. The fullness of God, do you want to know what God's like? It's actually not mysterious. He loves you, he dies for you, and he shows you the way to live. And he walks it out and he reveals something. And he has lives, again, this wasn't just a teacher, but somehow begins to inform and lead us into all truth. All sorts of things we could talk about. But I wanted to talk about like, like how, how he comes. If, if, the, if the fullness of God lies in Jesus, 
then what do we learn about what God is like through seeing how God comes to us? And, and Jesus is the way that God comes to us. One writer has said that when I, you look at all the religious systems of the world, you look at all the different philosophical systems of the world, the way that people process the one glaring thing that stands out isn't that there isn't truth in all of these systems. He's a Christian writing this. The one thing I, I try to objectively stand back and look at when I look at all of them is that the only thing for sure, because I can pull great truth out of this and great truth out of this and great truth out of this, is that there's no one coming for you. Either you've got to get there or you've got to be disciplined enough or you've got to experience this level of transcendence. The interesting thing, the thing that stands totally apart is that there's, well, well, there's somebody coming for you, which may sound really creepy, in the person of Jesus. What does the way that God comes to us tell us about what God is like? So there's this phrase uh, from Marshall McLuhan, anyone in advertising? Anyone in advertising in the room? Yeah, ever heard this phrase, the medium is the message? The medium is the message. Like the method by which you send a message has just as much impact or more than the content of the message itself. Does that make sense? Like the way something gets sent to you actually is just as vital. We used to think, like when TV first came out, when advertisers were trying to make sense of television, there was this idea that like, well, television is sort of a neutral medium, but you realize the way things come to you actually matters. The way things are, I mean, our phone is a primary example. It's not just a neutral device with different advertising information. The way the thing comes to you matters. A few examples of this uh, would be, <coughs> this is a classic one, I think I've used this before. This would be, um, let's say, uh, a man and a woman, uh, let's say, uh, They've talked a little bit about engagement. They've been pretty excited about it coming. Maybe they've even, like, done that horrific thing. I'm old school, where they, like, shopped for a ring together. No judgment if you did that. I just, I'm old school. I just, I don't understand that. But peace be with you. Um, um, just playing. Uh, but the, uh, you know, you're, you're getting really excited about this. And, and, and she's, she's, she's kind of. I know it's coming any day now. I can feel it. I, I know it's coming. It's going to be great. You're like you pull up to the beach one day, and you're like, maybe this is it. You're taking a walk on the beach. He goes down to like tie his shoe, and you're like, this is the moment. Oh. You're waiting, you're waiting. And then it's like, I don't know, Thursday afternoon. Just got back from your lunch break. You're sitting back down at your desk, and you get a text. Yeah. You get a text. You get a text. It just says, I L U V space U. Will letter U marry me? Question mark. Happy emoticon. How does it make you feel? What does the message send? Text message, regardless of its content, conveys the idea that something is quick. And throw away. It's a little extreme of an example, but the point is made that the medium, the way something comes, conveys something about the message. So God doesn't send a text. 
born in a manger, becomes like us? Why does the way that he comes to us matter? And what does that reveal to us that stirs something about our fascination about the one who calls us? My assumption is that it reveals something central about God's character. In the writer John's first letter, he says this, God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Here's the nature of love. Talking about the medium is the message. Love by nature needs to find form. Essence has to manifest itself in some way. It's inevitable. It's logical even. Love has to become an action or something concrete. Love must be made flesh. This is why we post the things that we do on Instagram sometimes. Anyone follow anybody where their entire feed is just their children? Better be better. It's me. (laughs) Hashtag Harper Mook. Click on that. Some golden. No, don't click on that. It's weird. It's my daughter. Like love has to, like I have to get it out. I have to tell somebody. I have to share something. Like love and joy, these things have to express themselves. You don't have like love bottled up in a closet by itself. I love, I don't know what's actually happening in, in Claude Michelle's heart when she's singing. But there are these moments for, with Claude Michelle where it's just all of a sudden, you ever notice this? She's like singing, it's a quiet moment. She goes, ah! Anyone read, you, you experienced this a couple times this morning. Ah! I'm just like, that's some love in her heart that's got to get out. It just has to express itself. Love by nature needs to move and flesh itself out. If God is love, this makes sense of how God showed up. And then love by its very nature is risky. The Bible begins with God making people who have freedom and freedom to love God or not love God. These people consistently choose in the scriptures not to love him. It talks about in scripture that um, God regretted that he made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Another translation says, then God was sorry he made humankind on earth and it pained his heart. That verse doesn't like show up in your like daily memory verses. The ancient writers saw God as having a heart that feels and responds and hurts and fills with pain and grieves. And what's the source of his grieving? Us. It's the, it's, it, it's the, if you've ever had a child who's gone astray, if you've ever had a sibling or a spouse that's just made some awful decisions and walked away from what they knew to be true and good, you know that pain. Love is risky. You ever put yourself out there one too many times and you're like, I will never get into a relationship again. People got, God made people have freedom, freedom to love anybody they want and freedom not to love anybody they want. God takes this giant step in creating and loving people and in the process we're told God's heart is broken and it happens again and again and again. Most of the popular images of God are warrior or creator or judge or he gets relegated to a system of theology or some absolute truths, father, father or the writer of an owner's manual Most of those things, other than the owner's manual, are are, are accurate things. But a lover, 
a lover whose heart has been crushed and expresses it in poetry. This raises questions about what's at the base of the universe and whether it demands our fascination. And of course, what's at the base of the universe, or or as a follower of Jesus, I would say, who? A list of rules, a set of beliefs, which you believe or you don't, and if you do, you're in, and if you don't, you're out. A judge, a critic, making a list and checking it twice. Impersonal energy, like fate or destiny or luck or chance or the force. That's two Star Wars references in one sermon that you can tap into. Something you know if you know the code or the technique or the philosophy or have the self-discipline. The story of the Bible, though, tells us of a living being who loves and who continues to love even when that love is not returned. A God who refuses to override our freedom, who respects our power to decide whether to reciprocate. A God who lets us make the move. One writer says, so, if you were God, which I realize is an odd way to begin a sentence, but if you were God, the all-powerful creator of the universe, and you wanted to move toward people, and you wanted to express your love for the world in a new way, how would you do it? How would you do it? There's all these passages about God not being able to show up in his full power. He scares people away. God shows up in all his majesty and beauty. God showing up in all of his majesty would almost be coercive because there would be nowhere to hide. And so if you're, it's, it's like the story of the king who wants to woo like the, the, the woman in the village. But if he comes as the king, he won't know whether the, the, the person in the village really loves them or actually or actually just because of the power dynamics. That's the only reason why. That would be the only like, reason or way that she would even, he would even know. So he has to come as a peasant. He has to come as just a common person. So if you're God and you want to express ultimate love to your creation, if you want to move toward them in a definitive way, you have a problem. Because just showing up overwhelms people. You wouldn't come in strength. You wouldn't come in your pure, raw essence. You'd scare everybody away. And the last thing people would perceive is love. So how do you express love in an ultimate way? How do you connect with people in a manner that doesn't scare them off? This is the story of Jesus. This is the poetry of Jesus. Born to a teenage peasant under questionable circumstance. Mother gets pregnant before marriage. He's born amidst all the... the, crap in the straw of a stable placed in a feeding trough. Brothers and sisters think he's out of his mind. His first sermon in his hometown, people like form a mob and want to get him killed. Jesus then goes on to identify with outcasts, the people of the land who aren't good enough, who aren't clean enough, who aren't wealthy enough, aren't pure enough to be part of the establishment. He's invited to dine with the elite and the rich, which he does do, but he also eats with the lowest of the low and enjoys it. And he enjoys them, and he seems to enjoy everybody except the hypocrites who are religious folks. He touches people with infectious skin diseases. He lets questionable women touch him. He lays his hands on dead bodies and engages in a conversation with a social outcast alone in the middle of the day. His entire life is about stripping away power and control. He chooses the path of love, connection, solidarity rather than rank and hierarchy, touch rather than distance, compassion rather than control. Even the way he makes his triumphal entry, if you're familiar with the Bible, what does he ride in on? A chariot? No. A horse? 
a donkey. A donkey. That's not like random. He is making a statement. How I roll is literally not like how the power structures roll. And by the way, I'm God. He's showing us something about what God is like. This is why whenever we see Christianity get hijacked by coercive power, we know we see something ugly. We know it when we see it, that that has nothing to do with Jesus. That's why it gets so distorted and confusing so quick, though. It's like in the name of the one who lays down his life for his enemies, you are oppressing people. It's definitely not happening anywhere near us in any way in our nation right now. This is the path that God wanted to show up and show us what he's like, and this is what he looks like. This is what love does, right? I could go on with the story. It threatens empires and power and control and wealth and manipulation. He's eventually arrested and put on like some kind of trial at which he's asked to perform miracles, which he refuses, knowing that a display of his miraculous abilities would not be true to the path he's on. He's beaten and flogged, and he doesn't fight back. He's mocked. Doesn't say anything in return. He's hung on a cross, naked, bleeding, vulnerable, and thirsty. Strength turned upside down. And he dies on the cross, taking away all our accusations and excuses and arguments. He comes to us and lays down his life. We say this phrase often, the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. I mean, this is quite literally God saying, me too. When we look at the pain and brokenness and ache in our own lives. God, it says he experienced all the brokenness and ache that we did. He's saying, I, I know what it is. Come, follow me. I'm not going to give you a map or directions. I'm going to walk with you and show you what I'm like and who I am and where the love and the forgiveness and truth is. The cross is a way of God saying, I know what it's like. I know what it's like. And so you go on when he rises from the dead. The disciples are walking away from Jerusalem in Luke 24, road to Emmaus. Jesus rises from the dead. I would have chosen at that moment to like elevate in some way. Maybe Jesus turns into some sort of like disco ball. Right? Like I rose from the dead. Like I'm going to go to the center of Roman power and make a declaration. Right? I'm going to quickly invent YouTube and this thing's going to go viral. Like why wouldn't you do this, Jesus? Where does Jesus go when he rises from the dead? He goes to two of his disciples who are utterly disappointed and defeated. Everything they had hoped for, they saw Jesus die over the last three years. It all falls apart, and Jesus comes to them. He comes to them. You have 40 days. What would you do in front of as many people as possible? And he comes to them, and he just, he seeks out the discouraged. He seeks out the hurting, and he calls them back home. 
the unfaithful, the ones who abandon him. He calls them back. I reference this story because it's meaningful to me because I think for a lot of us, we just struggle with, well, I kind of walked away from this or I'm not sure where I'm at or I don't know if there's any way home or I don't know what it means to be fascinated with Jesus. I frankly don't have time for that. I just want you to know that the God of the universe at his spare time upon rising from the dead, he goes after that you. You're that, you're that character if that describes you in this moment. The one who is discouraged and lost and not sure what to do. I'm kind of like, okay, I guess, I guess this is it. This is what ultimate reality is like. This is how God moves. This is how God moves. And so when Jesus says, I am the way and I'm the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me, he was saying that his way and his words and his life is our connection to how things are at their deepest existence. This isn't just like a call of my religion's better than yours. He's saying, I'm the design. This is what John and Paul say about Jesus. He's the design behind it all. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's saying no one else is coming for you. This isn't some arrogant phrase like get your ducks in order. Look, it's me or nothing. He's saying, I love you. It's me or nothing. And so for our church going into this season, asking questions about who we're called to be and what we're called to do, we need to be people that continue to recenter that question of calling back on the person of Jesus. How am I called to spend my energies and my margin? What does it mean to be the person I was, was I created to be something? And, and keeping our eyes stuck on Jesus. Jeff Bezos from Amazon. Uh, has this thing that he does. Uh, I, I think he still does this. Uh, I just heard about this the other day. He, um, for every new person who comes into Amazon headquarters, he uh, brings two sawhorses in and then lays just a, a, a table, an unfinished table on the two sawhorses and says, this is your desk. Because that's how they started. Uh, he, he continues to say in the culture of Amazon, which is this massive, massive organization, right? He says, we, we want to be a day one company. Like the same fire and entrepreneurial spirit that existed in our company on day one, that's who we want to be. And so the brand new executive that comes in, he's making six figures. Here's your desk for a while. This is how we started. He's like pushing culture. He's helping them. Like you need to make sure you're centered here on our vision and our mission and our values. We need to be a day one people people who don't forget their first love. And so where have you maybe lost fascination with Jesus? Where maybe today is there a sense like you, you kind of needed a little like a little pep talk and this was it. Like for some of you, it's just, it's okay, well, I, I remember those times of, of like writing a prayer to Jesus in my journal. I remember that time of like, reorienting my life and caring what Jesus thought about these things. I remember what it was to walk into a space of worship and be so excited just to give thanks for all that had been done for me. I remember the hunger in my bones to learn and read and grow more. Maybe it's recovering your first love. And for some of you, maybe this, there's an invitation here to go, 
this all sounds kind of interesting. I think it might be BS, but it still sounds a little interesting. And Jesus says, come and see to Nathaniel. Come and see. Come and journey. This is the story of how so many came to know Jesus in the early church. They came and began to just, just live it out. Just walk, walk together. Walk it out with us. I want to end our time with a moment of just prayer and reflection before we, before we transition at the end. I welcome the band up. I was reflecting a bit, obviously, on Jesus' life here. And thinking about just how it related to me going back to that verse. Like, I didn't just come with wise and persuasive words. I didn't just want to come with this. Like, I, I came to just be resolved to just, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. At the end of the day, I can cook up all sorts of ideas and theorems about this and that or the other. But all I really have at the end of the day is, is Jesus. In my own life, I just kept thinking that this phrase, like, to merely believe in God like, is to read a menu and expect it to satisfy your hunger. To be fascinated with Jesus and a follower of Jesus is to eat. I am so not interested in a Christian, vague Christian worldview that you may have. That's a great place to start. But the cry of our community is a fascination with Jesus. To be, to be zeroed in and focused on our first love. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. To experience the meal. Herod tries to kill Jesus because he thought that Jesus wanted his throne, if you remember in the Christmas story. This king wanted to kill this baby because he thought that Jesus wanted his throne. But Jesus didn't want Herod's throne. He wanted his heart. He wanted his heart. Let's pray. Lord, if there's any truth to you being the one who calls us, And for those of us who know in this room right now, like, this is true. Oh, this is good. There, I believe right now in the room is like an, ex, an expectancy, like an expectant heart, a curious heart maybe for some. That the things that are like maybe stirring in our heart or the conviction that we feel over here or the encouragement or the great comfort we feel that God knows what it's like to experience the hurt of this world that God has so loved us and forgiven us. But that you in this moment would do something that I can't like name. you would do something, Lord, just in this space now. As we reflect on the cross, the place where you died for our sins, taking away our guilt and shame, 
showing us what the Father is like. this reality, this love, this forgiveness, Lord, that it would work us over all over again. This image from prayer over the last 24 hours has come up multiple times from people. It's just been like just jumping into like this ocean of God's love, just swimming in it, like recognizing like the, the refreshment and the freedom. So Lord, in this moment, as we sing, Jesus, what a Savior. The things that are, are happening in our heart, Lord, where they find their way like into our bloodstream. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you're worthy of our attention, of our fascination, of our wonder. Thank you that you're enough.